Amen. I don't know who that guy was with a big beard. Uh, that was my Corona beard, I guess. But I love that video because, you know, our world is going, what is going on? 2020 is a crazy year. Nothing good can come of this, and God has not stopped working. You know, I think of the, the song Waymaker, even when I can't feel it, you're working. Even when I can't see it, you're working. I can't wait for a few weeks from now, on February 21st, we're having our next Mission Sunday, and we get to share all the ways that God is moving across our world. People are getting saved, churches are being planted left and right, all amid a pandemic. So God never stops moving, he never stops working, and praise God for that. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dig into the word. God, thank you for the fact that you never stop, you never cease. You never stop moving and your wonders never cease. May we never stop being in awe and wonder of you. And so, Lord, we don't know what 2021 holds for us, but we know who holds 2021 in the palm of his hands. And so we entrust our lives, our church, our neighborhood, our region, our country, and our world to you, knowing that you are a great God. You are a loving God, a just God, a merciful God, a gracious God. And we pray over our families as we wrap up family month and ask that you do a mighty thing in our homes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple months ago, our family went to Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is where my wife is from. And we hadn't been there in over a year uh, because of the pandemic. We just hadn't been able to visit them. And it was so sweet. It was so good being with them and seeing her parents. And so we're there, we're, we're rifling through some of Sky's old things, and we come across this digital camera, the old digital camera, maybe 15, 20 years ago, and it was so horrible. <laughs> this camera was just a piece of junk. We still have it. I mean, the resolution is terrible. It's one of those, like, like in the very first, you know, digital cameras, you can barely make out, you know, is there a face there? What's going on? I can't tell the facial features. It's just not that good. So we gave it to our daughter, and she loves it. She loves this thing. Oh, my very first camera. And so on the way back from Tennessee, she's taking pictures of like the side of the road as grass is blurry going by. She's taking pictures of the back of our heads while we're driving. She gets home, and she's running through the house taking pictures. Daddy, Daddy, look. Oh, cool, a pickle jar. No, that's a Christmas tree, Daddy. It's that bad. Uh, you guys remember Nintendo. Old school Nintendo, mid-80s, like 8-bit Nintendo. I don't know if it was like that bad, but it wasn't great. Especially compared to now our modern-day smartphones that, I mean, you can not only see the facial features, you can see every crevice and wrinkle of your face. It's in high definition. There is such a contrast. And many in our world have an 8-bit resolution understanding of Jesus at best. He's fuzzy. He's blurry, he's distorted in their mind. And maybe, for some of you, that describes your family members, your kids, maybe even your spouse. And so how do we increase the resolution of Jesus in their minds? Well, we are wrapping up Family Month. Today is the last week of Family Month. We've talked about the gospelized family, that Jesus and the gospel have to be the foundation of everything in our homes. We've talked about the gospelized husband, the gospelized wife, that even our roles have to be centered on Christ within the family. Last week, Pastor Steve talked about gospel harmony in the home, that the gospel comes within 
Okay, how many of you were here last week? With an eraser, you remember that? And uh, on your way out, you got an eraser. Hopefully, if you didn't, there are several more out there. Take as many as you need. The point is that we are to overlook offenses and that we are to be the first to forgive because God has forgiven us so much. Now, we realize some of you may be thinking, yeah, but my marriage, my family needs a whole lot more than just overlooking offenses. We get that. Maybe you need more than an eraser. Maybe you need a gospel power washer. The gospel comes with that too. Maybe you need the power washer of Jesus to just do some deep cleaning. There's some deeper conflict resolution needed in your home. The gospel does that. So we need gospelized homes, gospelized families that are centered on Christ. We want Christian harmony and unity in our families that reflect the prayer of Paul in Romans 15, verse 5 and 6, where he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How fantastic does that sound? Right? How many of you want this for your family? We should, we should, show of hands, you, you want, does this sound fantastic? Does this sound phenomenal? We want this for our families, and we should, Christians, we should want this. Endurance, encouragement, harmony, one voice, that's unity, in accord with Jesus, together, glorifying God, glorifying Jesus, this sounds fantastic. But what if you are the only believer in your family? Or what if... You have family members who are antagonistic toward the gospel, and they belittle you, and they try to suppress your faith. Or maybe you have family members who they say they live for Jesus, but their lives are a far cry from that. Then what? Well, we're going to step outside of Romans for a moment, although we will look at a couple passages in Romans momentarily. But I want to direct you to John 7, 5, which says this, not even the brothers of Jesus believed in him. Not even the brothers of Jesus, even Jesus had unsaved family. Now, I don't know about you, but that actually, you know, brings some pressure off. Even Jesus, you cannot get more gospelized than Jesus, and yet here he is with unbelieving brothers, which means that Jesus can empathize with your burden. He can empathize with your struggle with unbelieving family members. Okay, well, what about if I have an unbelieving spouse? Well, Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12, he says, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So what if I have an unbelieving spouse? Does this give me warrant to automatically divorce them? Is this license to divorce? No, 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 no. Paul is actually saying to endure and stay in that marriage so long as it depends on you, as long as the believer doesn't abandon you. Now, he addresses that. What if you, have, you pursue, you fight for your marriage, and your unbelieving spouse wants nothing to do with you because you're a believer? He addresses that. I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 7. It's kind of outside the scope of this message. But don't abandon your unbelieving spouse. Why? Number one, for the spiritual influence on the unbelieving spouse. Because they are made holy, he says. That doesn't mean they're saved automatically. It means they are under the compelling influence of the gospel lived out through the believing spouse. 
Living with a Christian can be and should be a compelling witness to them and may lead them to saving faith. But second, for the spiritual influence on your children. Paul says remain in the marriage, not only for the sake of your spouse, but for the sake of your kids as well. Your life will keep the gospel on their radar and hopefully lead them to believe. In fact, you might be the only source of truth in their lives that would point them to a Savior who died for them. So now, I want you to go to the book of 1 Peter. First epistle of Peter, first letter of Peter, it's toward the back of the New Testament. It goes 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 3, and Peter is writing this letter to Christians who have been dispersed throughout Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, because of persecution. I mean, Christians were undergoing, 2,000 years ago, systemic persecution from the Roman Empire. They were hated. They were despised, loathed, and Peter is saying, endure, suffer well, because Jesus is worth it. He suffered for us, so we should suffer for him. Endure persecution and suffering for your faith, because you are exiles in this world. There's God's kingdom and there's worldly kingdom, and the worldly kingdom is diametrically opposed and hates God's kingdom. And so he says, you're not of this world as it is now. You're not of this kingdom. You are exiles in this world. So look with hope to the future and endure suffering. So chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Likewise, in the same way, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He says, in the same way, be subject. Well, in the same way as what? Well, look at chapter two. There are roles within social structures that people must follow in our world. We are all under various authorities, various levels of authorities that God has put into place, and so we are to be subject or submissive to the authority of another. Ooh, how we hate that word, submit. Even when I say it now, does it's like your heart kind of recoil a little bit, like, ugh. I will submit to no man. I will submit to no woman. I, I, I am my own man. I, I will not submit. Submission is not the best connotation in our world. And it just grinds against our internal flesh and pride and arrogance. And sadly, some Christian women historically have been subjected to degrading explanations and abusive applications under poor teaching of this very passage we're looking at. So let me tell you what this is not. This is not doormat theology. This is not permission, husbands, to walk all over your wives or wives for you to be all walked on over. You are to be servant-hearted. You are to be respectful, but only Jesus is your master. Your husband is not your master. Husbands, your wives are not your slaves. This is not advocating the passive taking of abuse. This is not saying that you can abdicate your faith because your spouse doesn't want you to follow Jesus anymore. This is not giving in a sin because your spouse says so. It's not doormat theology. This is also not forced surrender, forced servitude. Submission is an attitude of the heart done willingly, whereas forced servitude is yielding by being required to do so. And so what is a good definition of submission? It's simply this conceding to one's direction and leadership. Conceding to someone's direction 
and leadership. At Bethel, we believe in something called complementarianism, which is a big $5 fancy word for we believe that men and women are equal in both the church and in the home, equal in dignity, status, worth, and value, but different in roles, different in form and function. Not lesser, not greater, just different. God made us different, and that difference is good. It's God-given. And so we are under various authorities. Even Jesus was under authority. Look at the, look at the verses right before this at the end of chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, he can, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Okay, we're going to be together a lot. I'm going to be here every Sunday. I'm going to be preaching a lot. I love amens. Now, if you're like, oh, I don't want to say amen. Look, this is, there, a lot of people aren't here today. Don't worry. Who cares what people think? I love amens. And it's not to puff up my ego. My, I, I don't need my ego puffed up. It's, I need to know that you're with this. I need to know you're with me, that you're tracking with me. Because literally the word amen, it comes from the Hebrew or Greek word amen, meaning so let it be or I agree. So let me, let me read that verse again. Here we go. Because this is flat gospel, folks. This is so good. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. There we go. Keep that going. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is the ultimate example of submission. He submitted to the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He's on his knees in agony, praying with great sweat drops of blood pouring from his face, saying, God, if, if it be your will, please let this cup of wrath, your just wrath, pass from me. He wasn't looking forward to going to the cross. Now, he did it out of obedience, but he wasn't looking forward to the physical agony, but even worse, the spiritual agony of the father turning his back on his son. Oh, God. Father, why have you forsaken me? As he bears the brunt of all the sins of the world upon his shoulders. And yet, in that garden, he said, nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. You can't get more submissive than Jesus. And praise the Lord, because we were all a bunch of wandering, dumb sheep. But the shepherd of our souls died in our place so that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. See, that's the gospel, and the gospel is vital context here when we are giving instructions and hearing instructions on husbands and wives and families. There's a reason we have talked so much about the gospelized family. The gospel has to be the background and foundation of our homes. So even Jesus was under the authority of the Father. And when the authority is holy and righteous, as husbands are called to be men, Submission is not burdensome, it's a joy. A wife follows the direction of her husband within the household, but her ultimate devotion is to Christ above all. She follows his leadership first and foremost. Husbands, let me say a word to you. Be the spiritual leaders of your household. I mean, I hate to say it this way, but man up! 
Give your wives a reason to follow your guidance. Make them want to follow your leadership willingly. We should be such demonstrations of Christ-like love and grace that our wives are eager and willing to follow the spiritual authority that we have in the home. Be the spiritual leaders of your household, husbands. Lead with love and grace as Jesus does. As it says in verse 7, now we're not covering verse 7, but you can go ahead and look ahead. Verse 7, Peter says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. He talks about you are co-heirs, you are partners in the grace of life. See your wife as a partner, not lesser, an equal partner in the grace of life. And lead well. Okay, but what if my husband or my wife, my spouse, my kids, my parents, whatever, what if they are not a righteous authority? Well, this is what Peter addresses. He says, some do not obey the word. That is the gospel. So either they aren't believers or they aren't living like believers. They're acting like believers. And at Bethel, we have counseled so many whose spouses or kids or parents are not believers, and the believer feels so burdened for them. And maybe that's you. You've experienced grace and the gospel through Jesus, and you want that. You want that for your family members. And our hearts break for you if you are in that situation. We do not belittle that burden. We do not disparage that burden. You are right to be burdened for your family. In fact, can we just pause for a moment? I want to pray over you if you're in that situation. Father, I, I pray over every man and woman here who does not have, or who has family members in their immediate family or their extended family who are not yet believers. Oh God, we cry out to you because we can't change hearts, but you can. We can't transform minds through faith and repentance, but you can. So Lord, do a work, do a mighty work in our families. And may we be persistent and prayerful to that end. Trusting in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as with anyone, you need the intervention of the Lord in their hearts. We cannot change hearts. I can't change hearts. You can't change hearts. But guess what? We know someone who can. And only the Holy Spirit can change hearts. In fact, you might say he is in the heart transformation business. This is what he does. And before his activity in our hearts, we were spiritually dead in our lives. And spiritually dead people can't make themselves alive. Spiritually dead people can't make other spiritually dead people alive. This isn't a zombie movie. That's not real. We are spiritually dead. It's only God who awakens our heart and minds to life in him. And that's what we pray for for our unbelieving family members. Now you may be like, ah, but I want them to be saved so badly. Good. Gospel zeal is good, but listen, be careful about shaming. Be careful about being pushy. Don't be pushy. Don't be preachy. That can actually backfire and often does backfire. That can be counteractive. Now take every gospel moment you have to live out and proclaim the gospel, but don't pressure them. Don't Bible bash them. Don't, don't get too pushy or preachy. You might actually stiff arm them by doing that. Trust in God and be faithful. We see in Romans, actually, in Romans 8, 5 through 8, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You know, like I said, we moved here January 2017, early January, and and a little over four years ago, and I learned about this thing in this region called Chicago-style popcorn. You ever had Chicago-style popcorn? How many of you know what I'm talking about? I love cheese popcorn. Oh, I can just grab a handful of cheese popcorn, you know, and all that cheese dust is all over my fingers, and I'm, you know, just lick it off like you're eating Cheetos. Oh, cheese popcorn's so good. And I love caramel corn, caramel popcorn, so sweet and sugary, it makes a nice dessert. But I had always thought, never the twain shall meet. I don't, leave them separate. I don't want to mix cheese popcorn with sugary caramel popcorn. Gross. That's nasty. And so for the longest time, I refused to try that. That's so gross. And people would be like, no, you got to try it. It's so good. Fine. So I tried it one day. And the scales fell off my eyes. And my eyes were opened. I saw the light. I saw the light. I mean, it was so good. I tried it and I was like, oh, where has this been all my life? And now I'm urging other people, you got to try this. In fact, at Women of the Word this last uh, Tuesday, you know, I was here in the office and they had some leftover snacks and they had bags of Chicago-style popcorn. And I saw my daughter's you know, eating one, and I might have grabbed one of their bags and took it from them, but it was, it was so good. And we're talking about popcorn, folks. How much infinitely more is the grace experienced through Jesus? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's so good. And if you are a believer, your mind and heart have been miraculously transformed. Your eyes are open, the scales have fallen off, you have seen the light. You don't think the way you used to think, like the world. You're not obsessed with the things of the world, the things that are hostile to God. Your mind is on the things of God bringing you life and peace. Quite frankly, your worldview, your perspective, your way of thinking is radically different than your unbelieving family members. They still have the scales on. They're in darkness. And this is important to remember because you likely might get frustrated with your unbelieving family members. But remember, they're still living in darkness. They are still in darkness. They are still thinking like the old person you used to be. Their minds and hearts have not been awakened yet to the beautiful truth of Jesus. So be faithful. Be patient. Show grace. Allow God to spark empathy in your heart for them because you have been there, done that, and now you have seen the light. So Peter says, Oh, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. The word for one here is actually was a business term. It meant acquired. And so your spouse might be acquired. Well, acquired by whom and for what? Acquired by the Lord for his glory in his kingdom. Oh, that they would belong to Jesus as you do. Oh, that they might be a child of God as you are. Now, notice, notice what it says. Look at, look at the verse again. It says, might be or may be. Not certainly, not absolutely, not definitely will, maybe. You can't manufacture this, but be, again, faithful. 
Husbands whose minds are closed to the word of God might be won without a word by the behavior of their Christian wives. Same goes with wives uh, or you know, husbands who have unbelieving wives. Win them without words so that you can win them to the word by the word. If your spouse is closed to hearing the word of God, they cannot avoid seeing the word of God lived out in you. Oh, they can close their ears, but they can never shut their eyes. And so Peter emphasizes Christian conduct, godly conduct. Well, what is conduct? Conduct is the way you live out what you believe. We always do what we value. Everybody does what they value. Everything we do, everything we don't do is based on our personal values. It drives me nuts when someone says, I I wish I could read my Bible. I just don't have time. I don't have time to be reading my Bible. Yes, you do. You just don't value it. You value other things that you spend your time on. Watching football, watching Netflix, hanging out with friends, whatever the case may be, going bowling. Not that those things are bad. Those things are not bad. But we do everything based on our values. You always do what you value. So the question is, are you a window or a mirror in your home? Now let me explain. Four years ago, we were looking for a house and we looked at, how many houses did we look at? 50. Okay, Sky looked at 50. I looked at maybe five. <laughs> so we were looking at house after house. Did you hear that in your voice, by the way? 50. We were looking at house after house, and uh, there would be some, like the one we're currently in. We live in Crown Point that have a sunroom or a Four Seasons room, they're called, with tons of windows everywhere. And there'd be some, and you remember there was one in a basement that, the, it was creepy. <laughs> the basement walls were like covered in mirrors. Now initially you go down, you're like, this room is huge. And then you go, oh, no, well, okay, that's deceptive. Those are mirrors. Are you a window or a mirror? See, windows open up light into the home and they reveal how things really are outside, whereas mirrors are deceptive. They just reflect back the person looking at them. In other words, do you reveal Jesus in full resolution as a window or do you reflect worldly values and respond to loathsome behavior and words with loathsome behavior and words as the world would? When your spouse says something ugly, you go, oh yeah, well this, oh yeah, well this, and just escalates. Is that how you respond? See, if a picture is worth a thousand words, an action is worth a thousand pictures. Love speaks volumes. Love speaks volumes. Model a heart that values Jesus above all. A changed life submitted to Christ proves God's existence, proves God's power vastly more than any well-crafted argument or any heated debate ever could. Unbelieving spouses, they will take notice of your lives and they might even desire the same change in their lives by submitting to Christ. Look ahead in, in chapter 3. Go to verses 15 and 16. Skip ahead a little, a little bit. Verse 15, Paul writes, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Honor Christ as Lord. Always being ready to give an answer to anyone that asks you for the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So he says, first of all, verse 15, set apart, honor Christ as Lord in your heart. That has to be primary. Christ must be set apart as Lord in your heart. You have to have a transformed heart in Jesus. It starts there. But then he says, be ready. 
Be ready to answer why you have hope that's different from the world, why you have hope in a hopeless world. And if there were ever a time to do this, it'd be in the middle of a pandemic, a global pandemic. But there's an an assumption here. Peter is assuming that people will only ask you about the hope that is in you if they see the hope that is in you. No one's going to ask you about the hope you have if you don't demonstrate that hope. A verbal witness means nothing if not backed backed up by an authentic, Christ-like lifestyle. So what kind of conduct is Peter referring to? Well, look at verse 2. When they see your respectful, or literally in the Greek, in fear, pure conduct. In fear, respectful. This is fear of the Lord. This is reverence. This is respect for one another. You might say this is attitude. Attitude of the heart that has been changed by Christ. But he goes on and he says, not just in fear attitude, reverent attitude, but pure and holy conduct. One who lives differently than the world because of Jesus. So you have attitude affected by Jesus, but you also have actions ref- that are pouring out of the attitude you have in Jesus. Attitude and actions. You have been transformed and are being transformed by Jesus. You reflect that to your fa- family members. Yeah, but oh, pastor, I fall so short of this. Yes, join the club. Don't we all? We all fall short of this. You are not Jesus, but you point people to Jesus by living for Jesus. So be real with others. We're not perfect. Own up to it. We mess up. Own up to that. Confess to your spouse. Confess to your kids, your parents, when you fall short to say, hey, I messed up. I reacted to you as I shouldn't have. I said these things I shouldn't have. Tell them. Be real. There's so much fakeness in our world. You know that some people have burner accounts in social media so that they can be someone who they're not? Our world puts on facade after facade after facade. So much fakeness. Be real. Our world is craving authenticity. People are longing to see genuineness. So be genuine, be real, love them with no hidden agenda and live sold out for Christ. Well, but look at verse three. Peter writes, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be, oh, this is so good, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit Some translations say a gentle and peaceable spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of clothes, the wearing of gold jewelry. The culture in Peter's day had an obsession with external adornment. Does that sound familiar? A while back, Sky sent me to the store to pick up I don't know what it was, like Neutrogena face sparkling, pore opening, cream lotion oil, something like that. I don't know. It may not even been Neutrogena. Maybe it's Maybelline. Thank you, Sky. So I get to the store and I, and I walk toward where I think I need to go, you know, near the pharmacy in the beauty section. And I come to what husbands we know as the Isle of Intimidation. Asian, Asian, Asian. Amen. Amen. <laughs> wow, amen that. It's true. I mean, you get there. There's two or three aisles of like lotions and loofahs and body creams. And I'm just like, ha, ha, ha. I don't, and, but, you know, 
It, when I go to Home Depot, I can't ask people where stuff is. You're, you know, I gotta be a man and I gotta figure out where everything is. So I figure the same thing. Oh no, I'll figure this out. And after probably an hour, I think I finally found it. But man, so many products. This last uh, Friday, I went on a daddy-daughter date with our two daughters, which I love doing. We try to do a couple times a month. And uh, we went to the food court and we ate and we had a ball. And we're going back to the car. We're walking through the mall and we come across a store. We pass a store and our, our oldest, Genevieve, says, oh, daddy, can we go in there? Can we please, please, please? I'm like, all right. The store is called Claire's. If you're not familiar with Claire's, Claire's is a jewelry and fashion store for young girls, or as I like to call it, the seventh circle of hell. <laughs> so we get in there, and she finds this makeup kit. And she's like, oh, daddy, please, can I have this makeup kit? Please, 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 can I have this makeup kit? I'm like, no, you're six. You don't need makeup. <sighs> Fine. Oh, daddy, daddy, they do ear piercings here. No. Now listen, I know some of you might pierce your daughter's ears at a young age. That's fine. No judgy. You do you. But man, I want to keep my little girls as little as possible for as long as possible. It's like, no. No ear, no ear piercings. But, but daddy, look at these earrings. You don't have your ear pierced. Why do you need those? And I just realized, ladies, you are bombarded with this stuff. Not that there, there's nothing wrong with any of that, but it's how our society portrays this. Commercials, Barbies, media portrayal. You're never pretty enough, never enough. You never measure up. Hair, gold, clothes. Again, nothing inherently wrong with these things. These things aren't sinful. Every woman I've ever known wears these things, and that's good. That's fine, unless they become an obsession to elevate yourself. See, notice these things are objects, hair, gold, clothes, and if we're not careful, they can become objectifying. They're not personifying. There is no personhood in these things. That's not who you are. And our world is constantly obsessed with physical beauty, with sex appeal, with power, prestige, wealth, status. You are not reduced to uh, being a trophy wife. You are not simply arm candy. Now, I'm happy to be that for you, Sky. but we are not arm candy. You're not. Beauty is only skin deep. It's so much more than what is on the outside. And this is what God says in 1 Samuel 16, 7. He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. For the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that might be one of the most major points in this message. God looks at the heart. That's what's most important to him, the inner beauty. So Peter says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and peaceable spirit. Concern yourself with how you dress the interior of your soul more than the exterior of your body. Who are you really deep down when you're by yourself? Who are you when you're around other believers? How do you act and talk and think? How do you immediately respond to strife from your spouse? See, these reveal character. External beauty is always fading. Wrinkles form. Hairs turn gray, if you even have hair to begin with. <laughs> Stomachs sag. 
Gravity always wins. Gravity is undefeated. But internal true beauty grows and it is imperishable. There are no wrinkles of the heart. There are no gray hairs of the soul. So he talks about a gentle and tranquil or calm or peaceable spirit, free from inner turmoil, free from hate and bitterness toward your spouse or your kids or your parents. He says gentle. I love this definition of gentle. Not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. Oh, that's good. We might use the word meek. Meek does not mean weak. Meekness is restrained power. The most beautiful people in the world means nothing if not humble and meek. And some of you may be civil with your spouse, but internally you are seething toward them. You internally resent him. You resent her. Pray over your heart. Ask God to give you understanding with a gentle, calm, peaceable spirit. Seek to love the Lord and your spouse from that starting point. Remember, only the Holy Spirit can change hearts, and that means yours as well. Now look at how Romans 12, in fact, you can go ahead and turn there. Romans 12, I'm not going to read through it for sake of time, but Romans 12, 9 through, a 12, 9 through 21, addresses this kind of godly conduct. Now he's talking about within the body of Christ, but this is true as within families as well. Consider these things with your family, your spouse, your kids, your parents. He says, let love be genuine. Genuinely love your family members. And if you don't, pray about that. Submit that to Christ. Love one another with brotherly affection. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I'm a competitive person. I want to win at everything. So I love this. Outdo one another in showing honor. Oh, you're going to honor me? Yeah, I will honor you even more. You're going to love me? I'm going to love you more. You're going to show compassion to me? I'm going to love you even more. That's, that is good competitiveness. <laughs> Outdo one another in showing honor. Be zealous and fervent in spirit and serve the Lord as you serve others, as you serve your family. Or, or this one, verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Now let me camp out here for a second. There's something to be said about resilience and endurance. See, we give up. We quit so easily. We want immediate gratification but anything worth having is worth fighting for. The best things in life are often hard things. So pray for endurance. Pray for, enduring, pray for endurance with enduring prayer. Marriage, like the gospel, is not a conditional covenant. You don't get to quit when the going gets tough. You don't get to quit on the other if he or she is not holding up their end of the bargain. Well, yeah, but what if they haven't come around? Keep praying. Yeah, but what if they're not yet saved? Keep persisting in living for Jesus. We need to encourage one another in this. We need to pray for one another. Bless those who persecute you, those who mock you, ridicule you, hurt you. Don't respond in kind. Respond with kindness, but don't respond in kind. Return their curses with blessings. Do not repay with evil or seek revenge. As far as it depends on you, live in harmony and peaceably with them, he says. In fact, you could say it this way. This is the last point. A gentle and peaceable person responds with grace and peace. And in God's sight, this is extremely precious. In God's sight. See, this is what matters. 
Even when your spouse doesn't notice, even when your spouse doesn't respond, know that you are ultimately not doing this for him or her. You are doing this for the Lord, and he always sees. He always sees. I love this story in Genesis 16. You have the maidservant, Hagar. She's the servant of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, God promised them that they would have a kid in their old age, a a son. Many years have passed. They still don't have a son. And so Sarah's like, all right, well, I don't know what's going on, but Abraham, I want you to go ahead and sleep with my servant. And maybe through her, we can have that child as our own. And and that will be how God fulfills the promise. And Abraham's like, okay. (laughs) Which God never told them to do. And so he does, and sure enough, Hagar conceives a son, she's pregnant, and now Sarah is jealous, and she's internally seething, and she tells Abram, what have you done? He's like, I did what you told me to do. And they send her out into the wilderness, they exile her, and as she's hopeless, and as she's helpless out in the wilderness, in the desert, God appears. The angel of the Lord appears to her and promises, you will have a son, his name will be Ishmael, and he will be blessed, and many people will come from him. But I want you to go back and submit to Abraham and Sarah. Be subject to their authority. So she does. But before she goes, she worships and she prays and she calls God El Roy. El Roy. The God who sees me. And some of you need to know El Roy. You need to know God sees you. Your husband, your wife, your parents, your kids, your unbelievers in your family. They may not see you. They may not respond. They may not notice. But God sees you. He's always watching you and caring for you. And this, friends, a gentle and peaceable spirit who lives for Jesus, who prays and persists in godly conduct, this is precious. It's of great value. It's of great worth. And if something is costly, that usually means it's rare. And oh, how rare that is and how beautiful that is in the sight of God. So the point this morning is this. You can summarize it this way. How you live with your family is just as important as what you say. So let them see Jesus in you. If you saw our Christmas Eve services last month, you were introduced to a couple, Kylie and Keith Elder. Kylie and Keith, years ago, used to party it up, live a very worldly lifestyle, and Kylie got saved. I mean, radically saved. She wanted no more to do with that partying lifestyle. Well, her husband, Keith, is like, I still want to go, and she wouldn't go, and he started to see a difference in her, a major difference, and he resented that. He resented God. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He would drive by Bethel, and he would tell her mockingly, I will never step foot in there. I will never darken the doorsteps there, never catch me dead in there. I don't, I don't care. I don't care about this God, this Jesus that you serve. She'd come home. He would ridicule her in her faith for 20-plus years. But she prayed every day for him, every single day, and she lived out the Jesus life. And over time, he started to wear down to the point that a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, just over a year ago, Keith trusted in Jesus and gave his life to Christ. And he's radically different to the point that this last summer he was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And I remember talking to him, and he's like, you know what? If God takes my life, so be it. I know where I'm going. I have hope. Now, was he looking forward to cancer? Did he delight in the cancer? No. But his whole perspective changed. And what an honor it was to baptize him last month. Now, this isn't promised, but this is, this is what can happen 
when we pray and live persistently. Let's do that for our family.